If you have your book of Mark with you this morning, uh, you can go ahead and open to page number 26. It's so cool. We have page numbers we can all use. Page number 26, we're going to be starting with Mark chapter 4, verse 21, as we've been going through our series on Mark. If you're new here, you probably don't have one of these. Uh, You can raise your hand. Do we have some left, Sybil? We were going through them fast uh, to keep ordering more. But if you don't have one, if you're new here, go ahead and raise your hand and we will, the ushers will get one to you. And uh, it looks like I'll be ordering some more soon. But we want you to have these. It's just the book of Mark, but it's on real paper instead of Bible paper, which isn't really paper. And uh, so it has like scripture on one side and then an area for you to take notes on the other. We want you to write in it. We want you to circle things, highlight things. We want you to write questions and squiggles and doodle if I bore you, whatever it is. But we believe that the word of God is powerful, it's alive, it's active, and it's able to completely change your life. So we just want you to have this. I even told our tech team, don't put the, like normally we put verses up there, but I want you not seeing it on a screen. I want you seeing it on your Bible and following along and reading it at home during the week and all that kind of stuff. So if you have your uh, mark with you, page 21, um, verse, no, chapter 4, verse 21, and uh, what Jesus is doing, he just got done teaching the parable of the sower, which he said, this is the first parable you have to understand, is that you have to have a heart that's been prepared by God so that you can even respond to the gospel message. And if you do that, if you allow your heart to be shaped and to be changed by Jesus, that there's going to be fruit that's born inside of you, that you're going to be transformed and changed and to be made like Jesus. But if your heart isn't right and ready for it, if it hasn't been prepared by the Holy Spirit to hear the gospel message, then you can hear it and remain completely unchanged or to have it so that the soil doesn't allow like, the life to come into your faith and produce fruit eventually. Now Jesus goes on out of that. And he says in uh, verse 21, And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed, and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. So what Jesus is saying here is that he is a secret, or that he is someone who cannot be keep, kept secret. That his coming is something that the whole world knows about now. He came in unperceived, but his kingdom has come now. And that Jesus, the king, has come and he's changing everything about our reality. He's changing everything about our existence. That he is the light that has come into the world. And that he didn't come in to be remained hidden, but he came so that all would be able to receive the light that he gives. He then continues on talking more about this idea. In verse 23, he says, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now when you hear this, it seems like Jesus isn't being very fair, right? Like, Jesus, you're going to give more to people who already have something, and to the people who don't have, you're going to take away what they, what they have? Like, that doesn't seem right. But what Jesus is saying is he's describing the reality of our spiritual existence is when you hear the words of God spoken to you, when you hear the revelation of his kingdom and and how life in the kingdom is, if you begin to then apply those words to your life, you begin to live as a subject of the kingdom of God, then you gain even more understanding about Jesus and you gain even more understanding about the kingdom that he's brought. If you don't do anything with it, if you just hear the words and then you don't do anything with them, you just continue to live life as if you'd never heard it, you're not changed, you're not coming into conformity with the call of God on your life, then it says what happens is that little understanding that you had ends up being taken away from you. 
and you'll go back to the place where it was like Jesus never even revealed himself to you. Like it didn't even matter that you heard the words because you're not going to live in a way that reflects that. So it says that we're not supposed to be just hearers of the words and so deceive ourselves. We're supposed to be doers of the word. God speaks to us. Jesus calls us to follow after him so that our lives can be transformed and changed. And as we begin to come into obedience to everything that he speaks to us and reveals to us, we gain more and more understanding of who Jesus is and we gain more understanding of the way our life is in his kingdom. And I see this all the time. People will make a decision to follow Jesus and those that really dig into the word and really begin to come into obedience to the call of Jesus on their life, like they get it. And they gain more understanding of the kingdom. And they begin to mature and they begin to produce fruit. But those who make a decision to follow Jesus but then don't begin to apply God's word to their life, they just live hearing it but not doing anything with it, you'll see that eventually they end up kind of drifting away. They'll like come to church less and then eventually they stop coming to church entirely and they go back to living pretty much like they had never had an encounter with Jesus where he spoke to their heart and changed them. And some people will even get to the place where they're like, ah, no, I never really had an encounter with God. It was all made up. Like, I had a friend in high school. We were accountability partners because that was like the rage back then. You had to have your accountability partners. And like, he wanted to go to seminary and everything, like deep, like incredible experiences that he had with God. And now he's a Buddhist. And then he's like, he's not even a good Buddhist, like not really a practicing Buddhist, like a hip Buddhist. And he's like, no, like, I, I never really had any experiences with God. I'm like, you are a liar. Like, I was there. I saw, you might not remember, but I remember what Jesus was doing in your heart. But there came to be a point in his life where he stopped applying the word of God to his life. And then what he had was taken away from him. And it breaks my heart to see that in him, and it breaks my heart to see that in other people as well. Those who make it, those who follow Jesus and love him for the long haul and there's fruit that's born in their life, what separates them from the people that don't is just that they take the word of God and they apply it to their life and they believe. They have a childlike faith in God. And those who don't make it, it's not that they didn't have good intentions, it's not that Jesus doesn't love them, but they stopped applying the word of God to their life. And then the understanding that they once had about him is taken away from them. So Jesus says, be careful. Be so careful to hear the words I'm speaking to you and begin to apply them to your life because that's what's going to lead you more and more into understanding. But if you ever stop doing that, you're going to lose the understanding that you have. He continues on and he says in verse 26, um, he's going to tell two parables about the kingdom of God real quick and we'll get through them real fast because I'm already behind. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man would scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ears. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said to them, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like grain of mustard seed, which when sown into the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them. 
as they were able to bear, able to hear it, not bear it, that's kind of funny, as they were able to hear it, he did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So what Jesus is doing is he's trying to explain the way the kingdom of God works. He says that the kingdom of God came in an imperceptible way, that Jesus, the king, has come to us, but it was like a mustard seed, which in Jewish uh, poetry was a symbol of like the smallest thing that there is. It was a tiny seed. It says that Jesus came in an imperceptible way. The world didn't notice when the king came. Because he, he didn't come like you'd expect a king to come. He came as a peasant child born of a virgin, as a refugee, as someone that didn't have power or clout. He came unheralded except for by the angels and the shepherds. That's it. When the king came, that was all that he had to welcome him. And they didn't even fully understand who he was. But just like a mustard seed that's planted in the ground, we don't know how it's happening. We don't see that it's happening. We're not in control of it happening, but it begins to grow. The kingdom of God begins to grow. Jesus begins to expand. He begins to spread as he begins to teach and to heal and to demonstrate. The kingdom of God begins to spread. And as it happens, as it grows, what started out so small becomes something that is big. It becomes something that's greater. What it says is that the plant becomes so big, it's bigger than any of the other plants in the garden, and it becomes a place where there's branches of rest for the birds. It becomes a place of shade. It becomes a place of restoration and healing. Jesus says that's what his kingdom is like. We didn't see it when it came. We didn't understand how it was growing. We didn't understand what the kingdom was about, but we also couldn't stop the kingdom. The kingdom continues to advance. The kingdom continues to grow. King Jesus continues to move across the face of the earth and over the hearts of the men and women who dwell here and it just as his kingdom grows it becomes a place of refuge for all of us where the hurt and the lost and the broken and the weary we come into the kingdom and we find rest we find restoration we find healing we find our king jesus says that's what my kingdom is like come into it and just as in the parable of the sower he was talking about the way that we enter into it is with this childlike faith inside of our hearts We don't earn our way into it. We don't deserve our way into it. Jesus brought it to us. It's a free gift that he gives to us. We just simply bend the knee because we believe that Jesus is God, because we believe that he's the king, because we believe that he is good and that he will lead us into the life that he's called us to. That's the way that we enter into it. It's just this childlike faith that believes that God's able to do everything that he says he does. A childlike faith that believes that our Father is so good to us and would never harm us. They would never deceive us. He would never lead us astray. That might not be the reality of your earthly father because like none of us, as dads, none of us could measure up to it. Every one of us is messed up and we're broken and we've fallen and we've betrayed and hurt our children and we've let them down in varying degrees. But God's is a perfect father who will never disappoint who will never let you down, who will always be good to you, and who we can always put our full faith and trust in. Now Jesus begins to explain what this means to us, that his kingdom has come and that it's like the plant that's producing the shelter and the rest and the refuge, that he is the king that can't remain a secret. You can't hide him or his light. It begins to be worked out now. He moves from just teaching about what his kingdom is like to actually now demonstrating who the king is and what his kingdom is like. So in verse 35, It says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with him uh, in the boats. And just as he was, 
as other boats were with them, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? What Jesus is revealing, what he's demonstrating about himself, is that he is greater than the storm. Jesus, the king, is greater than any storm that you can find yourself in in life. Now, the disciples, a lot of them were fishermen. They have a lot of experience in boats, and so uh, they're, they're going out there, they're doing their thing on the lake, and the storm comes up, and they're all freaking out. And we think of, like, Jesus and his entourage or, like, in a boat, like we would think of. Like, no, it's much, much smaller than you imagine. Like, tiny boats. Like, the, the 14 people is about the max that you could fit in these boats, and that's if you were, like, all up in each other's personal space. These are very small boats, most of them hundreds of years old, not something you would want to be in in a storm. And it's so small, in fact, that the waves are crashing over the sides of it. And these experienced fishermen who are used to storms and all of those kinds of things on the lake, they're freaking out. Like, they think they're dying. It says the boat is filling up with water. And they come up to Jesus and they're like, like Jesus, like, don't you care that we're perishing? I love, first of all, that Jesus, while all of this is going on, he's asleep on a cushion in the boat. Like, I'm not sure he was asleep because like, I'm a dad and I know what it's like sometimes when you just don't want to get up. Because like my wife, like, she will, you've done the thing, like if you had kids, you'll hear the baby cry and it's like the contest to see who opens their eyes first. And so I'm like doing this thing like, well, I can't do anything anyways. It's like, you know, God give me a male body. I can't feed the child. Like, sorry. And so like you pretend you're asleep and that you don't hear the baby. Like I've done that maybe once, maybe once. Like I'm not sure Jesus is asleep and then maybe he is. He's sitting in the crib, like waves are washing over him, but maybe he's trying to teach them a lesson. Maybe he's trying to see what it is that they're going to do. But they freak out. And they come to Jesus, like, don't you even care? Like, Jesus, we're your disciples. We're following after you. You're using our boat rent free. Like, don't you even care that we are all about to die? You're just going to sleep on the cushion, not even your cushion. That's my cushion you're sleeping on, by the way. And you're just going to sit there sleeping while we all die. Jesus gets up, just with his words, stops the storm. He says he rebukes it. Everything's still. And then he turns around to his disciples. He's like, why are you scared? Why were you so afraid? Do you still have so little faith? What Jesus is saying to them is, don't you understand who I am? Don't you get that as long as I'm in your boat, you're going to be okay? There might be waves, there might be storms, but not a single one of you is ever going to perish as long as I'm with you in this boat. You just didn't understand who I was. You still don't have a childlike faith in who I am and what I'm capable of. And they proved it because he calms the storm and then it says that, you know, they were freaking out because of the storm and then it says, then they're like really afraid because Jesus calmed the storm. Like, who on earth is this? That even the wind... And the seas have to obey him. Have you ever found yourself in one of those moments where you thought, Jesus, don't you even care that I'm perishing? Have you found yourself in one of the storms of life, in a situation 
where you think like, Jesus, my marriage, like, Jesus, don't you care that my marriage is perishing? Jesus, don't you care that my business is failing? Don't you care that my children don't ever listen to me? Like, Jesus, don't you care that I'm sick? Jesus, don't you care? Like, whatever. Whenever we find ourselves in the midst of the storm, there's going to be one of two reactions. One is like, I'm, I'm freaking out because I'm perishing, and Jesus, you don't even care about me. Or number two, it's going to be, I got the king with me in this boat. I don't have to be scared of the waves, and I don't have to be scared of the sea. I don't have to be scared of the wind because I know who's with me. No, Jesus cared. I think that's what a lot of you need to hear this morning. When you find yourself in the midst of a storm, it doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care about you. It means that you just need a greater revelation of just how much he cares about you. In the early church, up until Constantine uh, made it so that Christianity wasn't illegal anymore. Being a Christian costs you something. It is absolutely miraculous that Christianity spread like it did. That Christianity conquered the Roman Empire through peace and through laying down your life and through loving your enemy. Being a Christian was illegal. You get fed to the lions. You separated from your family, sold into slavery. You were unable to do business in the cities. You were, so that meant that you had to live in poverty. They could capture you and burn you. Nero would burn Christians as torches in his gardens to light them. Being a Christian cost you something in the first, second, third centuries. And so one of the most popular pieces of art that you'll see, if you look at some of the art from the early church, one of the things you'll see over and over again is this, this picture of Jesus in the boat, in the storm, with the disciples in him. And the reason they kept painting this picture and the reason they kept this before themselves was because they recognized that they were the disciples in the boat. That boat was the church. The church existed in a turbulent time. The church existed in the midst of a storm of where they were being persecuted, where Satan was doing everything that he could to destroy them and to stamp out the church. But they also know who was with them in the boat. They knew that King Jesus was with them in that boat. And they knew that they didn't have to be afraid of those that could kill our bodies but never destroy our soul. They knew that as long as King Jesus was with them, they would never perish. They knew as long as King Jesus was with them in the midst of the storm, everything was going to be okay. Jesus never promised to deliver us from the storm. Jesus said, in this life you will have troubles, but take heart because I've overcome the world. You know how much Jesus cares about you? He cares about you so much that he saw us in the storms and he left the glory of heaven. He humbled himself to become human. He was despised and rejected by us. He went to the cross, bore the full penalty for our sin, endured separation from the Father because of taking on our sin. And why did he do all of that? So that he could climb into that boat with us. Because he wasn't willing to let us go through the storms of this life on our own. You have a God who loves you so much that he would leave heaven to come to you. So that you would never have to ride out those storms alone. But that in the midst of the hardest seasons of your life, in the midst of the greatest hurting and suffering that you will ever go through, you never have to be afraid because he's with you. You never have to fear perishing because he's with you and he will never let you perish. Jesus is greater than the storm. Then he goes on. It says, after the storms all calm down and, and they're freaking out about who Jesus is, they came to the other side of the sea to the country of Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. 
No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and among the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you come to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Like even the demons are like trying to get God on their side. Like, please, by God, don't hurt me. Uh, that, that shows you how much power Jesus has. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly, do not send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs in their herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And when they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat, and the man who had been possessed with demons begged that he might go with him. And he did not permit him, to, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. If you want to know how do you do evangelism, that sums it up right there. Go home to your friends and your family and tell them how much God has done for you and how much mercy he's had on you. Like, that's a great strategy. That's all you need to do. And then he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So what's happening? Like, one of the questions I get all the time is like, so what's up with the pigs? Well, what we see happen to the pigs is what, Jesus, or what Satan was trying to do to this man. Satan does one, he has one job description, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He hates the image of God. And so when he sees you, someone who's made in the image of God, he hates you and he wants to destroy you. What the demons did in the pigs and killing them was what they were trying to do to this man. But there was some grace of God that was over him that kept them from being able to lead him to that place of destruction. But what the demons did in those pigs is what they were trying to do to that man and is what the demons and all of the powers of darkness will try to do to us. But here's the good news. Jesus is greater than Satan. Our king is greater than any of the powers of darkness and it's not even close. It's not a yin and yang. Jesus and Satan aren't equals in powers that are opposites. That's not it. Jesus has all power and authority. There is none that can stand up to him. Listen, like we live in a world where the demonic is a reality. I'm not one of those people that says play records backwards and you hear Satan talk or that there's demons behind everything. There's seriously in a church I went to once there was a lady who was like, Satan pushed me down the stairs again this week. I'm like, first of all, this happened again. Maybe you shouldn't use the stairs. Secondly, you're just clumsy. Like Satan's doing enough bad stuff in this world, let's not give him credit for things that he's not even doing. But the demonic is a reality in the world that we live in. And when the demonic gets a foothold inside of our lives, what it'll do is it'll lead us to destruction. It was destroying this man. It was destroying him relationally. He was driven off by himself, living in the tombs and in the mountains. Nobody wanted to be near him. We're not made to live in isolation. The human psyche doesn't handle that. He was being emotionally and relationally destroyed by the demonic. He was being physically destroyed. It says that, you know, he's cutting himself with rocks and sharp objects. Satan hates you and he wants to destroy the image of God. 
He's also been spiritually destroyed. Instead of being led by the Spirit of God, filled with the Holy Spirit and moving into the things that God's called him to, he's being controlled by demonic spirits that are leading him into destruction. It says that the people, like, we're trying to help him. And I love how we try to help other people. Like, well, let's lock him up. Like, that'll help him. Let's put him in some chains and shackle him. And that's the way we, I mean, not to get into, like, prison reform stuff, but hey, that's kind of like how we deal with stuff. Like, let's chain someone up if they need help. But it didn't help him. There was nothing that anybody could do to help him. He's tormented. There's no hope for him. Eventually, he is going to be completely destroyed. But then Jesus. And then Jesus comes to him. Jesus said that he came to set the captives free. He says that he came to preach liberty to those who are in bondage. So Jesus comes up to this man who's in spiritual bondage to demonic forces that are greater than anything that any of us could ever help him out with. And the demons are completely powerless against Jesus. So in your life, you will come up against opposition. Satan will do things to try to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Emotionally, physically, spiritually, relationally, in the ministry call of God in your life, he will do everything that he can to destroy. But the good news is, is that Jesus is greater. And there is nothing that the forces of darkness and the domain of Satan can do to keep you from living the life that God's called you to, to keep you from following after Jesus. Because when Jesus comes into the situation, you are completely set free. When Jesus comes into the situation, you're no longer a captive, you're no longer in bondage. It says that now when Jesus, you're sitting there clothed at the feet of Jesus in your right mind, now as a disciple of him, following after him. You're able to go and to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. You're able to proclaim the power of Jesus and his great mercy for you who would completely restore you and set you free. No demon, no power of darkness is stronger than Jesus. Every single demon must bend the knee, they must submit, they must tremble, and they must flee at the name of Jesus. We have nothing to fear because Jesus is greater. It then goes on, and when Jesus, this is verse 21, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat, he's like going all over this lake in that boat. Uh, To the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea, and they came one of the rulers of the synagogues, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and alive. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. What we see here is that Jesus is demonstrating that he's greater than sickness. This poor woman has been suffering for 12 years. 
For 12 years, she's been suffering. And again, she's suffering emotionally because at this time, uh, any kind of a bodily discharge, especially with blood, meant that you would be ceremonially unclean because uh, God said that life is in the blood. And so any kind of blood that we would touch or that would come out of us makes us ceremonially unclean, not sinful, but it makes you unclean because it's a symbol of death. Like, it's a symbol of loss. And so the holy God of life made it so that we needed to be pure and clean without the, the, you know, the covering of Jesus over us. So under the Old Testament law, any kind of blood meant that you were unclean. It meant that you had to stay outside the camp. You couldn't come into the synagogue. It meant that you were going to be kept away from other people. Nobody else wanted to be around you. Even though she's not a sinful woman, anything like that, but just because of the, the symbol of blood meaning loss and meaning death. So for 12 years, not only is she physically suffering, but she's spiritually suffering, she's emotionally suffering. For 12 years, she's been going to the doctors, and I love doctors. I'm so glad that medicine has advanced like an insane amount in the last 2,000 years. Like, thank God for that and for every doctor. But there are situations where the doctors aren't able to do anything. They just don't have the ability, there's not the understanding yet of how to cure everything. This is where that woman's at. She's getting worse. Maybe it's getting to the point of where she knows that her time is short if something doesn't happen. Her only hope that she has is Jesus. She hears about Jesus, about the king and his kingdom and what it is that he's doing. She hears about the power that he has, even over sickness. And so in her mind, faith is stirred up. A lot of times faith is stirred up in us when we put our faith in everything else and we see how it fails, when our money fails us, when our relationship fails us, when the doctors aren't able to help us. All we're left with is Jesus. And so it becomes all of your faith is in him. And this is where that woman's at. Faith has been stirred up inside of her, a childlike faith. She says, if I can just get to him, if I can just touch him, that healing is going to come to me. It's the exact opposite of the disciples. The disciples in the midst of their storm, they're like, Jesus, don't you care? And this woman in the midst of her sickness and her suffering and her storm, she's like, I just need to get to Jesus and everything's going to be okay. So she gets to him and she touches him. He marvels at her faith and her understanding of that he's the king. And this is like when it says sometimes Jesus is marveling at their faith. It's like, you got it. You understand who I am. You understand that I'm the king. You understand about my kingdom. You understand about the power that I have. You have an understanding of the age that is yet to come when there is no sickness, when there are no more storms. And we're able to call now on the age that is to come to see it manifest here and now. Be healed because of your faith. Now, there's been a lot of bad teaching on this. As I'm going to say, you can be healed of any sickness as long as you have enough faith or if someone isn't healed, it's because they didn't have faith. That's completely wrong. Like The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. There's also some bad teaching that would say that healing's not for today, not to put your faith in healing, that God doesn't do that. That's also equally bad teaching. The Bible clearly does not teach that. The Bible says that when we're sick, to pray for healing. And that the, the prayer of faith will bring healing to us. Jesus is responding to people's faith all the time and bringing healing to them. I believe that Jesus is a healer with everything inside of me. I've been ruined. I've seen healing in my own life too many times. I've prayed for too many people and seen them healed. I will always believe that Jesus is a healer. So people say, well, then how do you explain that sometimes people are sick and they die? I can't explain that. If it was a formula that I could say, look, okay, if I say this prayer, three rosaries, whatever, and everybody's healed, that would be one thing. But that's not it. 
I have a childlike faith that my God is a healer. I have a childlike faith that when my father says I heal people and to pray for healing, I'm going to believe him for who he is. And I'm not going to look at the results or circumstances and say, well, it failed this time, so it must not be true. When someone ends up passing away from it, I grieve and I mourn and I thank God that they have a full and complete healing on the other side of eternity. But until that time when we all enter into that, I'm going to continue to believe that our God is a healer. And I'll continue to have a childlike faith and I'll continue to pray for healing in my own life when I'm sick and I'll continue to pray for the sick when, when they come to me because I know that he's a healer. I've seen it over and over again that Jesus has proven and he's demonstrated that he is greater than our sickness. And then it continues on. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any farther? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. You need to circle that. You need to highlight that. You need to star it. You need to do something in your Bibles right there. Because when you run into the really difficult situations where you're hurt and you're broken and things seem impossible, you need to come back to the fact that Jesus tells you not to be afraid but only to believe. And it goes on, he says, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And why does he do that? It's, it's because he doesn't want a bunch of doubters with him. When he says, don't be afraid, only believe, he doesn't want a bunch of people who are scared and doubting around them. So he's just bringing a few people that are filled with faith along with him. It says, he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when they had entered, he said to them, why are you making such a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they looked at him, or sorry, and they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the father and the mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. There's a deep spiritual principle there you might miss out on. When you're believing God for something and other people are laughing at you, you need to put them outside. When you're believing Jesus for something impossible and other people are telling you like, no, that's impossible, you're stupid, that's foolish, those are people that you don't need in your life at that time. Jesus did the right thing and he got them out of the house. And sometimes there's some people or some relationships that you need to get out of your house because it's gonna, instead of filling you with faith, it's going to fill you with doubt and fear and thinking that Jesus and his promises are foolish. So he goes up there. To the room where the child was in 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. For she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. Like, I love how practical Jesus is. Give her something to eat. She's alive. See what Jesus did here? He proved that he's greater than death. For a lot of us, there are things that we all have this line that we come into or say, God, I'll have faith in you for this. God, I'll have faith in you that I can have a good marriage. God, I'll have faith in you that I can have a fulfilling career. God, I'll have faith in you for blah, blah. Maybe you're like, I believe that you're a healer, God, or whatever. But eventually you get to this point where it's like, no, God, that's impossible. Like, death? Jesus, are you serious? Like, we saw you turn water into wine. That was pretty cool. We liked that one. Do that again. They say, we liked it when you opened the blind people's eyes. We liked it when the crippled people got up and walked. But Jesus, like, she's dead. This is impossible. What they did was they drew the line of their faith. Childlike faith only went to this point, and then it turned into teenager faith where you don't believe anything that your parents say. Jesus says, don't be afraid. 
only believe. Don't look at the improbability, only believe. Don't look at the impossibility of the situation, only believe. Because our God is greater even than death itself. Jesus came to the girl who was dead. And sleeping was also a term that was used to refer to like, believers. And when we die, they say that, like, no, you're not dead, you're sleeping. And we're waiting for the day when the trumpet sounds to wake us up, when we all are raised up with new bodies, never to perish again. Like, we're just sleeping until that time. Jesus comes up to the dead. He comes up to the sleeping. He says, arise. And he pulls from the domain of the dead back into life, this little girl. The most impossible thing that could ever happen. Death is the enemy that none of us ever defeat. Death is the common enemy that every single one of us has faced. We all face different storms. We all face different sicknesses. We all face different attacks from the enemy. But we all share this. He said, none of us get out of here alive. But Jesus is greater. And just as Jesus was able to speak to this dead girl to bring her back to life, Jesus will speak to all of us one day to bring life back into us. Death will never have the final word for us as believers. Death will never be the finality. Death is just sleeping for us because we have a king who's greater than death itself. Every time someone dies, it's a tragedy. We weren't created to die, so our hearts don't know how to process that. There's a deep pain because of the loss of relationship. A week and a half ago or two weeks ago now, Alan Bean, who was an astronaut from the Apollo 12 mission, I, I read an article or his obituary and talking about all the things that he'd done. And, you know, all the astronauts, those were heroes for us, especially growing up. Anytime a rocket would launch, it would be on TV still, and so you could watch that. And we'd, like in school, like you stopped whatever you're doing and you watched the rocket launch because astronauts were heroes. And there was a hope, there was a future that we were all excited about, about colonizing the moon. Things like flying cars from Back to the Future. Like as a kid, I remember growing up with a hope of what life would be like now that I'm 37. And in that article, I, I didn't realize it, but it said that there are now only four people left alive on this entire planet. Over seven billion people, only four of them have ever walked on the moon. Why? Because we kind of gave up on it. And it made me a little bit sad because it was like the death of a dream. It was the death of a hope. Like maybe the world isn't as cool as I had hoped it would be someday. Maybe some things really are impossible. You know we can get like that with Jesus? When you first decided to follow after Jesus, there was this childlike faith inside of you that believed him. There was this childlike faith that dreamed of the life that you would live following after Jesus for the way that you would know him the way you'd hear him speak to you how sweet scripture would be to you the understanding that God would unlock to you over a lifetime of following after him the way he used to worship 
pray. I just want to spend time with Jesus. The dreams of, of the things that you would do with Jesus to make disciples. Things that you would do with Jesus to bring hope to the hopeless. To proclaim freedom. To be a partner with Jesus in this ministry of reconciliation. When we decided to follow Jesus, our childlike faith didn't say that we'd become accountants. and We'd work 40 hours a week. We'd go to church once a month and that would be it for us. But that's become the reality a lot of us have accepted because just like with the space dream for me, I think a lot of us get to the point where it's easy to become disappointed with Jesus. We ran into a storm or we ran into some roadblocks. We ran into some disappointments. We got distracted. And we started to lose hope for the life that we once believed that Jesus was leading us into. We lost hope for the relationship that we would have with God and knowing him, knowing him intimately and deeply. Living as a child of God with him as our father. We just began to accept a different reality. If that's you this morning, just like Jesus said to the little girl, he speaks to you, arise. He reaches into the death of your faith and he's pulling it back into life. He's reaching into your disappointments, into your frustrations. And he's saying, arise. He's bringing a resurrection of faith inside of your heart because he's the God who's able to do that. He's the God who's able to calm the seas. He's the God who's able to, to cast demons out of people and completely restore them. He's the God who's able to heal the sick. He's the God who's greater. He's the God who's greater than death itself. And he's the God who's greater than the death of your own faith. And he's calling you this morning to have a childlike faith. He's calling you this morning not to be like the disciples in the boat that say, God, I'm perishing. Don't you even care? He's calling you to be like the woman with the issue of blood who says, if I can just get to Jesus. The good news is, is that Jesus has come to you. To every single one of us, Jesus has come to us. He loves you so much that he gave himself for you. He loves you so much that he didn't leave you in the storm on your own, but he came. He loves you so much that he came and destroyed the power of the demonic and over Satan over us. He came and he's the God who heals all of our diseases. He's the God who comes and will speak restoration. He's the God of the resurrection, of that he resurrects us now. He resurrects our faith now. People around this world are being physically resurrected from the dead, even in our age and he is the God who's able to resurrect the faith and the hope and the dreams that he put in your heart that have, all, that have now gone cold or that have burned out. He's the God who's greater. He's the God who's greater even in your unfaithfulness. Maybe you say, well, I walked away. I've gone back to a life I was never supposed to have lived. Listen, Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than your faithlessness. Jesus is greater than your sin. Jesus is greater than your doubt. And he's calling to you. He's speaking to you. He's saying, arise. Put your faith in me. Have a childlike faith in me. 
and come follow after me and I'm going to lead you into restoration. I'm going to lead you into intimacy and relationship with me. I'm going to lead you into all of the plans and the purposes. I'm going to lead you into the good works that I created you to do. I'm going to lead you into the life that you were always made to live and that you've been longing for. You just have to believe and follow after me. Because he's the God that's greater. Stand with me this morning. This morning, this is every eye open, every head bowed. Every, keep your eyes open and don't bow your heads is what I'm trying to say. But this morning, if you find yourselves in one of those places, you're in a storm, and you've been scared, and you need more faith. Maybe it's, you've come up against some roadblocks that the enemy's throwing in your way. You need faith for Jesus to deliver you. Maybe it's that you're dealing with sickness in your body and you need Jesus to bring healing to you. We have a God who still heals. Or maybe it's death. Maybe you're still mourning or grieving or disappointed because of a death. Or maybe it's because there's been a death of your own faith and you need resurrection in it. Jesus is here to do that. Maybe you've never decided that you wanted to follow after Jesus before, but this morning he's speaking to you and he's making faith come alive in your heart and you want to follow after the king who's greater than all of these things. This morning, if you're any of those people, beautiful just to raise your hand as a sign of faith of saying, Jesus, do something to me. Jesus, build my faith. Yes, thank you. Thank you for those hands. Jesus, yes, thank you. God, I pray over every hand that's raised this morning. God, that you would come and that you would do the things that only you can do. Jesus, we pray for every person that's in the midst of a storm right now. God, I don't even pray for them to be immediately removed from that storm, but I pray that your presence would show up in it in an undeniable way and that you would bring them peace in the middle of the storm. Jesus, that you would calm their hearts. God, that you would vanquish all of their fears. God, that you would build up a faith inside of them that will never cry out, we're perishing because you are in the boat with them. And that God, that they would know that they're never alone, that they're never forsaken, that you are there with them, that you gave up the glory of heaven so that you could be with them. Jesus, for every person that's coming across demonic roadblocks, Jesus, we pray now that at the name of Jesus, that every roadblock would be removed, that every attack of the enemy would falter and fail, that every plan would be revealed. Jesus, I pray now that you would trample over fresh and anew all of the works of Satan inside of our people. Jesus, for every person here who's sick, that you would bring them miraculous healing. God, that you would build up faith inside of them to put their hope and their trust in you. Today, Jesus, for healing. And if not today, that faith wouldn't diminish tomorrow for healing. If not tomorrow, that it wouldn't diminish a year from now. Jesus, I pray that we would be a people who on our deathbeds believe that we have a God who's greater than sickness and a God who heals. And that our ultimate hope would be in the future restoration that we have in you. But God, also for your manifest healing now in the age that we live in. Jesus, we speak healing. And Jesus, over dead faith, Would you speak arise? Let hope arise. Let faith arise. Childlike faith stirred up in the hearts of every hand to trust you. Trust you when it doesn't make sense. To trust you when it hurts. To trust you when it costs us everything. 
because we know that you only lead us into restoration. You only lead us into goodness. You only lead us into life. Jesus, when other people mock us and ridicule us, that we wouldn't be afraid, that we'd only believe. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Man, God's good. I just love what he does. I'm going to have my prayer partners come forward. They're going to be on the outsides of the front here. If there's anything that we can pray with you about, we see Jesus move miraculously every single week in response to the prayers of his people. We have a God who hears. We have a God who listens. We have a God who still moves and still speaks. So if we can pray over you over anything, come let us know. Or say you made a decision to follow after Jesus, especially if it's your first time. This is, this is the time you decided I'm following after Jesus. It's so important that you let someone know uh, because it's hard to follow after Jesus. Just being really honest, it's a difficult road that you're about to walk because other people won't like it. And Satan certainly won't like it. And you're going to need some encouragement and just some wisdom as you begin to walk that road. So I'd encourage you, come let one of our prayer partners talk to you. We have some resources we want to get you. Love to hear your story. Or if you can't do that, you can text, I decided to 97,000 and we'll be able to get a hold of you with the resources and maybe try to set up a time for a coffee or a quick conversation. We just want to know where you're at and how we can come alongside you and encourage you in the new decision that you've made to follow after Jesus. Um, encourage you to come let us pray for you. If not, go drink some coffee. Meet some friends, and we'll see you back here next week. Read your book of Mark, take it with you, read it up, write it up, circle it up, and bring it back next week. God bless.